You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family compelled by God's love to practice the way of Jesus together in Austin. Our big prayer is this, in Austin as it is in heaven. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Well, Justin uh, Christopher, as many of us have said uh, during the sermon series, is very fond of saying that there's a psalm for every season. Um, And for me, Psalm 51 is a psalm for all seasons. Um, And I already feel uh, emotional just having heard it read. And... um, If you knew my story, then you would not be surprised by the, um, by the reaction that I'm having to it even now, because I was, um, I was, I had shipwrecked my life, and I was adrift on the ocean of guilt and shame, and I washed up on the shore of Psalm 51. And it became a defining text for me. Um, It defines the way that I think about what it means to have a relationship with God. Um, it, It taught me how to relate to God in such a way that what we call the gospel actually makes contact with the psycho-emotional part of my life. And so in that way, Psalm 51 really accompanied me into spiritual adulthood, and so it's incredibly special to me, and and so I'm excited to talk this morning about what I've gained from it so that you can gain from it, hopefully, um, the way that I have. But first, we have to establish the context because Psalm 51 has a backstory. How many of you knew that already? If you look in the text, right there at the top, it says, to the choir master, a psalm of David, after Nathan had come to him, after he had gone into Bathsheba, there's, there's her name. One of two names that David's name gets paired with in defining moments of his life. You might think of David and Goliath, and in this case, David and Bathsheba. How many of you are familiar with that story? Just by a show of hands for me. Okay, good. So I won't spend a whole lot of time in it because I only have time to teach you one chapter of Scripture this morning. So, but we do need to cover it so that you'll understand a little bit more what's going on in this psalm. The story of David's encounter with Bathsheba is found in 2 Samuel 11, and then the fallout happens in 2 Samuel 12. Here's how 2 Samuel 11 starts. says, and this is just the the bullet points of the story. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a beautiful woman bathing. We find out later she's taking a ritual bath. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one of his servants said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife Of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. And then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived 
And she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. The biblical account is so straightforward. There are no punches pulled. Tells us exactly what happened. And David goes into crisis management mode immediately. He sends uh, for her husband Uriah, who's fighting the war alongside the rest of the soldiers, the war that David should be leading, but instead he's at home. He sends for Uriah and has Uriah brought back to Jerusalem and brings Uriah to the palace and gets him drunk in hopes that he will go home and go to bed with his wife so that she will think it is Uriah's child. But Uriah won't do it. As it turns out, drunk Uriah has more integrity than sober David, and he won't enjoy the comforts of his home or his bed or his wife while his comrades are sleeping in tents on the battlefield. And so David writes a message to the commander of the army instructing him to place Uriah on the front lines of the battle where he will certainly die. And then David seals that message, places it in Uriah's hand, and sends him back to war. Uriah clearly has a lot of integrity. David knows he's not going to peek at what's in this letter. Uriah is killed in battle. David brings Bathsheba into the palace, marries her, she gives birth, and the public is none the wiser. In fact, David actually gets to look noble because he's taken in the bereaved widow of his close friend Uriah, and he's going to provide for her and give her a life in the palace. I mean, how, how kind. <laughs> and if you read 2 Samuel 11, which I encourage you to do this week, if you read it, you will notice the repeated use of the verb sent. Sent. David sent to inquire about Bathsheba. He sent messengers to take her. He sent for Uriah. He sent Uriah back into battle. David is exercising massive power, even the power of life and death, without even needing to lift his finger. And he's drunk on that power. He sends and sends and sends and sends. And when all is said and done, Bathsheba has been raped, Uriah has been killed, and 2 Samuel 11 ends this way. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. See, David is not the only one with power. One of the things that this psalm teaches us is that God sees everything power hides. And he's seen David. He sends Nathan to David. Nathan comes to David while David is pronouncing his kingly judgments. And he tells David a parable disguised as a report about something that's happened in the kingdom. He says, David, there are two men in the city. One is rich and one is poor. And the rich man has many, many sheep, but the poor man has one. He has one little female lamb, and it's so precious to him that he cuddles with it in his arms, and it even eats off of his plate and drinks from his cup. It's like a daughter to him. But one, man, one day, the rich man had company in town, and he didn't want to part with one of his own sheep, so he took the sheep from the poor man and fed it to his guests, and David takes the bait. David says, that man deserves to die, and he should repay the, for, the poor man four times over because he had no pity. And Nathan says to David, you are the man. 
You are the man. Quoting now from 2 Samuel 12, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would have given you much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Now, Nathan has more to say to David, but that is the key phrase right there. Nathan asks him, why have you despised the word of the Lord? Nathan is quoting Numbers 15. He's quoting the Torah, uh, which says that for a person who has sinned defiantly, intentionally, knowingly, Numbers 15 says that person shall be cut off from the people because they have despised the word of the Lord, same phrase, and broken God's commandment, that person shall be cut off and their iniquity will be on them. And David now realizes that he has placed himself outside of the law's provision for atonement. Under the law, David cannot make this right. He's utterly scorned the Lord. He's despised God's commandment. He's willfully raped and murdered and lied and concealed. And the law can do nothing to help him. So the Lord, speaking through Nathan, has David dead to rights. And David responds. He admits defeat. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. Not I messed up. Not I've made a huge mistake. Not this was the exception to the rule in my life. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. I am the man. I deserve to die. I showed no pity. And Nathan says to David, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. And David is mystified by that. He is mystified by that. He does not know how to make sense of that. And in fact, in in an effort to make sense of it, he writes a song. And that is the song that we will be studying this morning. And if by the end of this sermon you don't quite understand Psalm 51, you know, usually I give recommended readings and stuff when I teach. Today I'm going to give recommended listenings, because if you listen to four songs, you can understand Psalm 51, just on a spiritual level, because you will catch the vibe of what David is trying to do here. So those four songs are Why Me, Lord, by Chris Christopherson, Invisible Touch by Genesis, Waterloo by Abba, and of course, Help by the Beatles um, from that, that much maligned album, but my favorite Beatles album, Help. So those four songs, I, I, if I have time, I'll show you how they, how they connect, but otherwise, you can listen to those four and you will understand exactly what David is trying to teach you in Psalm 51. But here's what David is going to do, and we're going to walk through this. There are five things that David does to deal with his guilt in light of the revelation from God that his sin has been passed over and that he won't die. Five things that David does, five things that you need to be able to do in your life to stay afloat spiritually and to deal with your own guilt. So the first thing that David does is he comes to God for mercy. He comes to God for mercy. He says, have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love. Steadfast love is the Hebrew word hesed. We spent a lot of time talking about it during our Ruth series. It's a consistent theme for David in the Psalms. We just sang that song, Your Goodness is Running After Me. That's Psalm 23. Surely goodness and mercy, hesed, 
will follow me, pursue me all the days of my life. David is getting in touch with the steadfast love of God, and he says, So according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Now what we see in these first two verses is that David is not in denial about what he's done. He's not in denial about what he feels about it. He's not sidestepping. He's not excusing. He's not justifying. He uses three different words to describe the different dimensions of the spiritual state that he's in. The first word is sin. Uh, sin. Sin, in this, in this uh, context, it means an offense against a king. It means he's broken the king's law. It means he's, he's out of alignment with the king. He's opposed the king. The second word that he uses is iniquity. Iniquity. Iniquity is a, is a word in the Hebrew language that refers to being bent. It means to be bent. But in, in psycho-emotional terms, iniquity, we experience iniquity through a feeling of guilt. We experience iniquity emotionally when our identity is accused, when we know that we are guilty. And the third word that he uses is transgression. And transgression is a violation of relationship. It's a violation of relationship. And this... This is really what has gotten David's goat when he thinks about his own behavior, is that he has violated this relationship. And so helpless to do anything to resolve his problem, the problem of his sin, his iniquity, his transgression, in light of the fact that he can do nothing to help himself to deal with those, he turns to God on the basis of God's steadfast love. I want to point out something here. And that is that these four words, steadfast love, sin, iniquity, transgression, they all appear in a very tight cluster in these two verses. There's only one other place in the Old Testament where those four words appear in so tight a cluster. And it is in Exodus 34, where God is renewing the covenant at Mount Sinai, which he had made with the people Israel. This is after they have turned away and worshipped a golden calf, and God is going to renew the covenant. In other words, restore the relationship between himself and Israel. And before he does that, he reveals his glory to Moses. Now, God's glory is the revelation of his character. And God reveals his character this way to Moses when he is restoring the relationship with sinful, sinful Israel. He says, The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, there's our three words, but who will by no means clear the guilty. David knows that there are guilty people whose guilt will not be removed, and he knows that there are guilty people who, by some mystery of divine justice, and apparently it has something to do with God's steadfast love, uh, who will have their guilt covered on that account, on account of God's steadfast love. And David wants to be sure that he is in the second group. I think that what David is trying to do in part by echoing these same four words in the same sort of way is he, this is a way spiritually of signaling to God that what he wants is restored relationship. When Israel needed their relationship with God restored, this is how God revealed his character. Now David needs his relationship with God restored. And his confidence, his confidence 
in the steadfast love of God actually gives him the ability to sort of create the space necessary to be curious about the behavior that has brought this guilt upon him. So he now has the space to ask questions like, why did I do this really? And what actually led to this? So that's the first thing that David does, is he comes to God for mercy. The second thing that David does is he assimilates his guilt. He assimilates his guilt. Now, that's kind of a psychoanalytic term, uh, and so I will explain that a, a little bit. The assimilation of negativity in your life is how you develop attachment to God. It is how you develop attachment to God. The assimilation of negativity is sort of a shorthand way of naming this process where you embrace the sorrows of life, you embrace your own flaws, you embrace the negativity outside and around you, but also within, while at the same time holding that in sort of coexistence and union with your joy and hope and confidence. It's the ability to take the good and the bad and hold them both together um, and sort of understand them both. And so the opposite of this is what's called splitting. And this is what we normally do. Splitting is where we want to distance our conscious self from the feelings and experiences uh, that we consider unacceptable or that are negative or shocking or unpleasant to us. And the result is that a split develops between our conscious self and our unconscious self, right? I don't want to think about it. I don't want to deal with it. So when it comes to the negativity in our life, whether it's negativity outside or negativity inside, our tendency is to, is to avoid, deny, medicate, blame, distract, and do pretty much anything we can to not really deal with the depth of things like failure and loneliness and rejection or suffering or depression, but especially guilt. And so what we're going to see in the next set of verses is that David is assimilating his guilt. He's owning it as a part of himself, trusting in the steadfast love of God, which gives him the freedom to admit the truth about himself. And when he notices his guilt, he can start to feel curious about it and not just condemned. Not just condemned. Chances are, um, well, I'll say this. Uh, in order to assimilate your guilt for you, you have to get in touch with it, you have to, get to name the truth of it, and admit it, and accept it as a part of yourself, and usually someone else has to point it out to you. Uh, this is what I found, much like Nathan did for David. But if you've become aware of the guilt in your life, and if you're here this morning feeling extremely guilty, um, and if you are trying to manage unassimilated guilt... Then, then what is happening for you is that you are living out of an accused identity and you probably have a functional guilt management system in your life. So if you have unassimilated guilt in your life, then probably you are using one of, of the following things as a way to try and uh, cope with that guilt. Your career, your parenting, fitness and dieting, political ideologies, and romantic relationships. Those are the five most common guilt management systems in our culture. But none of those can help you at all when it comes to ultimately resolving your feelings of guilt. So let's look at what David says, starting in verse 3. And watch how he does this. He says, I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. In other words, I can't get it out of my mind. 
Do you have one of those? From freshman year? From 20 years ago? You try to put it in the drawer, and you try to put it away like it isn't there. And then you lay your head down on the pillow at night, and you close your eyes, and the tape plays. And you see it all over again. I want to encourage you if you're in that spot. Um, sometimes it's a good thing to feel guilty. That's not really a popular thing to say, I don't think. But sometimes it is good. So if you are in this spot where you're saying, my sin is ever before me, I can't get it out of my mind, I want to say to you, good. If you can't get your sin out of your mind, good. Who is putting it there? Is it the devil trying to convince you that you're far too guilty for God to ever truly accept or love you? Maybe. But it also might be God inviting you to receive the mercy that only he can provide. And this is a pivot that David makes here, and it's a pivot that you need to make too, and that is to start understanding guilt. All guilt is an invitation to receive grace. All guilt is an invitation to receive grace. David says in verse 4, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. In other words, sin is sin because it is against God. We hurt people. We sin against God. And as David begins to belabor the intensification of his guilt in this psalm, his starting point is, this was against God. This was against God. And it is rebellion against God. It is opposition to God. It is an offense against God. It is not just a bothersome deficiency in David's life. It is rebellion against the God that he had come to know so well. And if David wants to actually have restored relationship with God, then he has to call this what this is. This is an incredible insight about reconciliation that David understood. Many throughout history have understood this. Desmond Tutu understood this. When he led the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, after the apartheid regime had been taken out and the ANC controlled the government in South Africa, and a nonviolent transfer of power to majority control, which no one thought could happen at the time, once they're in power in South Africa, they say, well, now we have the power of the government. Should we use the power of the government to retributively prosecute all of the people who committed these horrible hate crimes? And what they did instead was they had the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, in which people who had suffered under the apartheid regime could come and share their stories, and the people who victimized others in the apartheid regime could come and confess and tell the truth and tell what happened and ask for amnesty uh, from the government. And here is what Desmond Tutu, who chaired the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, here's what he says about true reconciliation. He understands this. He says, true reconciliation exposes the awfulness, the abuse, the hurt, the truth. It could even sometimes make things worse. It's a risky undertaking, but in the end it is worthwhile because in the end, only an honest confrontation with reality can bring real healing. Only an honest confrontation 
with reality can bring real healing. That's what it is to know God. It is to have an honest confrontation with reality. Tutu goes on, superficial reconciliation can only bring superficial healing. David can't use superficial healing. He needs the real thing. So he says in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. In other words, this has been with David all along. It's been with him all along. This was not just one big exceptional failure in the life of an otherwise great man. This was the culmination of a lifetime of formation in David's heart. And if you go back and read all the way to the beginning and read the story of David's life, you see he has issues with women over and over and over and over again. All the way back to his origin story, um, did you know that when David killed Goliath, one of the prizes he got was that he got to marry a princess? And they tell him that before he does it. Hey, whoever kills this giant gets to marry the princess. This was with David all along. He says, it's been with me since birth. It's a part of me. It's in my DNA. But, he says, um, he says in verse 6, Behold, you, God, delight in truth in the inward being, and you will teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Beginning in the second half of verse 6, these verses transition to these affirmations where he keeps saying to God, you will, you will, you will. And it doesn't come out in the English translation, but he says here, you will teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So David now sees that deliverance for him, salvation for him, is not about avoiding the consequences of what he's done. It's not about escaping this with his reputation or his kingdom or his power or his wealth or anything else intact. For him, deliverance for David is deliverance from the inward condition which gave rise to this behavior in his life. That's the deliverance that he wants. And that deliverance requires transformation through intimate relationship with God. That's what leads to this kind of deliverance. Now, when David starts to say now, you will, you will of God, you will teach me wisdom in the secret heart, one thing we need to understand is that God's desires are not wishes, they are intentions. His desires are not wishes, they are intentions, which means that if God desires for David to know the truth and to be wise, then God will have to be the active agent who brings those things about in David's heart. And if you, if you read this psalm slowly, you see David identifies 19 different ways in 17 verses that God is going to act upon him. So David is the passive agent. He is being acted upon as God does the transforming work. But now how does David think that transformation will happen? That's where he goes in the next section. So the first section, he comes to God for mercy. The second section, he assimilates his guilt. Here's the third section. David asks God for cleansing. He says, you will purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. You will wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Hyssop uh, is a branch, and the leaves have these tiny hairs on them, uh, and so the leaves hold liquid on these hairs. And the priests in Israel, as, um, as they're told to do this, they're instructed to do this in the law, they would use hyssop 
uh, as part of a ceremony for cleansing. Uh, so if, uh, if there was, for example, a home where someone had died, the priest would bring a hyssop branch, and they would go into the home, and they would dip it in water, and they would sprinkle the water from the branch in the home, and they would say, and you shall be clean. Or if someone had some kind of disease uh, that they had been cured of, and they wanted to be able to rejoin the community without people being afraid you know, of their contagious disease, the priest would perform a similar ceremony where they would dip the hyssop in water, and they would splatter the person, and they would say, and you shall be clean. Now, David, and also from the Torah passages that outline this process, that is where David gets this word purge. That's where this word purge come from, comes from. And in Hebrew, it means to de-sin, to unsin, take the sin of whatever, the opposite of sin, undo the sin. And so for David to evoke this priestly imagery, what is he doing? He's saying, I mean, he knows, we established before, there's no provision under the law for what David's done. The law, the priests, the ceremony cannot help him at all. He doesn't need a human priest. He needs a priest who can purge the heart. He needs God to do that work. So he says, verse 8, You will let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice, or literally dance. Let the bones that you have broken dance. This is an important spiritual perspective. For David, it was God who had broken his bones. It was God who had broken his bones. Sometimes grace hurts. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Um, but like when you, when you experience kindness that you don't deserve, and you really, really don't deserve, and you get kindness anyway, it's, it's humiliating, isn't it? I mean, isn't it kind of embarrassing? Because in order to actually enjoy it, you have to admit that you don't deserve it. <laughs> if you want to hold on to the illusion that you deserve it, then you can never enjoy it. And so the process of enjoying grace is a process of, of humiliation. It can be painful, and the process of becoming ready to admit that we don't deserve these things from God can be very painful. And David likens it to having his bones broken, uh, but he understands that, it, that this is necessary pain that is ultimately going to result uh, in his healing. I, um, I taught on this passage once when I was in college at our, um, our student-led Bible study thing uh, at Concordia University, and um, I was teaching on this passage, and I compared this process to a heart transplant and explained in great detail how in order to have a heart transplant, you have to have your rib cage cracked open um, and explained it so vividly that a poor girl who was sitting in the front had to stand up and leave and go uh, throw up in the bathroom. Um, so, so I'm not, I'm not going to do that <laughs> this morning. Uh, but this pr healing, healing can involve pain. Healing can involve pain, and that was an important thing uh, that I had to learn in my life, and I learned it from Psalm 51. Verse 9, he says, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Again, David emphasizes the inner life. This is not about the behavior. It's about the inward conditions of my heart that gave rise to to that behavior. So that's the third thing David does is he asks for cleansing. The fourth thing that David does is he prioritizes his relational connection with God. He prioritizes his relational connection with God. 
verse 11. He says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. The, um, the Coverdale Bible, which is the first English translation of the Bible, was published in 15, 1535. It translates this phrase, restore to me the joy of your salvation. It translates it this way. Give me the comfort of your help again. Give me the comfort of your help again. You can't experience the comfort of God's help if you can't admit that you need it, and you won't experience God's help if your relationship with God has gone cold. Not because God won't help you, but because you will lose the ability to recognize it when he does. And that's what David means when he says, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. He means, I don't want to lose the connection. I don't want to live like I never knew you. I don't want to lose the ability to hear from you. I don't want to lose the ability to see you. I don't want to lose the ability to sense your presence and to see your movements and receive your help. David is intent. It's his priority that his relationship with God stay intact. And one of the things that we learn from this psalm and other places in the scripture is that when you are crushed with guilt, you are in fact in the perfect place to make contact with God. Psalm 34, David again, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Psalm 147, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. And Isaiah 57, 15, this is what the high and exalted one says. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. Why does God dwell in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit? to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So in other words, if you came in here this morning racked with guilt and regret about something in your life and you are longing to be made new, then you have taken up residence in God's neighborhood. That is precisely where God meets people. He meets people at the point of their need. That's the fourth thing he does. He prioritizes his relational connection with God. The last thing that David does is he puts his pain in redemptive perspective. He puts his pain in redemptive perspective. He says, verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. That's the guilt of having murdered someone. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Two things to notice from this chunk of uh, verses. The, the, the first is that David has now made the request as succinctly as he has in the whole psalm. Deliver me, save me from blood guiltiness, the guilt of having been responsible for someone's death. But here's the second thing. David is not just interested in his own deliverance. He wants this whole experience to have some kind of redemptive purpose, namely that it's going to help others. So David says, once this process is done, not right now, but at the end of the process when I have been healed and restored, then what will happen is he gives three ways that he will testify to God's character. He says, first, I will teach transgressors your ways. In other words, I'm going to show people the way. I'm going to show people the way home. I'm going to show people how to come to God and be healed. 
I'm going to tell people that I know what it's like to feel so guilty and to feel beyond saving and to be dead to rights in terms of the law, but I'm going to tell people that I know the steadfast love of God. That's the first thing. The second two are related. He says, my, my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. In other words, I'll declare God's character and my mouth will declare your praise. This is what the comfort of God's help produces unless there's something in the way. When you have experienced the comfort of God's help, and when you've experienced what, what this translation calls the joy of his salvation, this is what naturally comes from that, is the desire to bring other people into it and to declare to people that there is a God who will steadfastly love and forgive them. So David won't be satisfied until his pain helps heal others. And that's the fifth thing he does. He puts this sin in redemptive perspective. And then we get two more verses to explain what David now understands about how to relate to God. He says in verse 16, You will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. And this is Waterloo by Abba. But in David's words, uh, you remember what, uh, what they sang? Um, uh, my, 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 I tried to hold you back, but you were stronger. Oh, yeah. It's silly just to, you have to listen to the song because it's so dippy. And like to try and tell you the lyrics in a serious way, you're just, oh, my gosh. My, my, I tried to hold you back, but you were stronger. Oh, yeah. And now it seems my only chance is giving up the fight. And how could I ever refuse? Anyone know the next line? I feel like I win when I lose. And that is the vibe. That is what is caught root in David's heart. I feel like I win when I lose. The sacrifices of God, the way I know that I'm pleasing God with my life is when I'm broken over my sin. And when I feel like I'm a loser and I know for sure that there's nothing about me that deserves it, that's when I feel like I win. And David sees things upside down. And that's what you have to learn to do. And you can do that, I think. I, I have learned to do that by doing what David does here. So the five things, do we have a, I think we have a summary slide. The five things, yes. He comes to God for mercy. He assimilates his guilt. He accepts it. He accepts the truth and the reality about himself. He asks God for cleansing, prioritizes connecting with God, and puts his pain in redemptive perspective. So when you feel incredibly guilty, this is what you have to do. And I suggest you do it before you do something like what David did. Because you can do this when the guilt is small. You can do this every day. Um, this has become kind of a regular practice for me. This is the first time I've outlined it in these five steps, but I've incorporated some practices from Psalm 51 in my life. I found it incredibly, incredibly helpful. Um, we'll put this slide up on our Instagram and, and stuff later so you can find it and refer to it, but these are the things you need to learn to do, to come to God for mercy, because that's the only place you're going to get it. I mean, look around in our world, and, you, and it's graceless everywhere. The only place where you're going to find it is with God. So you have to come to God for mercy, assimilate your guilt, ask God to cleanse it, prioritize the connection, 
Don't use the guilt as an opportunity to disengage from relationship, but be encouraged that when you feel guilty, you're close to grace. So lean in to the relationship and then put your pain in redemptive perspective. And I will say that's been incredibly huge for me. When I think about the things that I did in my life to put my, myself in the position where Psalm 51 would actually speak loudly to me, there are things that I regret. There are things I wish I had not done. But there are things that I wouldn't necessarily take back either because they've given me the ability to relate to people in an entirely different way as a pastor. And so when someone sits across from me and they say, this happened, and I regret it, and I don't know how I'm ever going to make it through. I get to say to them, you can make it through. I did. Here's how. So as we prepare to, um, to take communion together, as our servers uh, prepare that and, and pass it out, let me address just a, a pressing theological question, uh, and then we'll be done. And the pressing theological question is this, and maybe you've been asking yourself this question, in your mind as I've been talking. The pressing theological question is, Nathan says to David, the Lord has put away your sin. How is that actually possible? David is confident that God will do it. He's written this psalm to make sense of it, but how is that actually possible? I mean, Uriah is dead. Bathsheba is raped. The baby will die. And David thinks that God will forgive him, but under the law, he has no recourse, no sacrifice, no mechanism of atonement that can make this right for him. So how, how can God forgive David? How can anything we've discussed so far this morning at all display the justice and righteousness of God? How can he actually do it? How can God forgive David and still be a just God? How is God not just sweeping David's sin under the rug? Because it is really horrible what David did. And it's really horrible what some of us have done in our lives. How can God sweep that under the rug and still be a just God? So if you are asking that question, and if you feel skeptical about this, or if you in fact even feel outraged about this, and you wonder how God could do this, then let me introduce you to someone who shares your skepticism. That person's name is Paul, Paul of Tarsus. And here's what Paul of Tarsus writes in Romans chapter 3. He wrestled with this question, and Romans 3 is one of the most important verses in the New Testament, passages in the New Testament, when it comes to how Christ relates to the Old Testament. So look very closely. You can follow with me on the screen just very quickly. Romans 3, 21 through 26. Paul, thinking about this question, how can God just pass over all of this sin and still be just? Paul says, but now the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law. Good, because David couldn't get righteousness from the law. That's his whole problem. Paul says, God now has revealed his righteousness apart from the law. How did he do that? Well, he says the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So the Old Testament told us a little bit about this, but how did God do it? Paul says it is the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You're like, I knew that one. I've heard that one before. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are in the right with God by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward 
as a propitiation. That's a wrath-removing sacrifice. God put Jesus forward as a wrath-removing sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. Why did God do this? Paul says this was to show his righteousness because in his divine patience, he had passed over former sins, just like he did for David. He says it was also to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who lives because of Jesus' faithfulness. That is how God can pass over David's sin and mine and yours. The righteousness that God requires of you is not something you achieve. It is something which has been achieved for you by Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says. And that's the only way this works. If, the, if, if that doesn't work, it's outrageous that God would pass over David's sin. But Paul seems to think this works, that it has to do, you know, God is not sweeping David's sin or my sin or your sin under the rug. But God, what he does instead is he looks at the faithfulness of Christ and he says, no one has ever fulfilled the law like that. Jesus is faithful to God. No one ever fulfilled the law that way. Jesus is faithful to us. God says no one ever suffered like that. No one was ever crushed like that when Jesus was crucified. And God says, I accept it. I accept this sacrifice. I accept this sacrifice one time for all time. God did that so that you could come and put your guilt in contact with his grace and experience freedom and redemption and the forgiveness of all of your sins. And that's why we do this every week that we are about to do now to commemorate that sacrifice that Jesus made, which was for David and which was for me and which was for you. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We invite you to practice the way of Jesus in Austin with us because as we become more like Jesus, Austin will become more like heaven.